I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today... And today we are joined by the newly minted memoir manifesto queer author George M. Johnson... Wow, that was a long wow. explanation. You didn't even write that down. You just riffed that. that Comma, was... author of All Boys Aren't Blue. Which is period indie bestseller. And it came out about a month ago now, right? It's been about a month. Yeah. So he's going to join us later on the show. And he talks about, he gets into so many different things that I think are hard to get into. Yes. Um, his His lack of filter was refreshing because... Um, he, and we'll, we'll talk about this in the interview, but he's very transparent about losing his virginity, <laughs> <It's really laughs> which, which is a journey to it's having awkward. sex, virginity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that actually. What was your virginity toward <laughs> losing your virginity? It's like Odysseus trying to get his boundary oh my God, you know, on. That would be a great show. I think on Amazon prime, virginity. I think it's a, it's more of like an FX Amazon Prime show than than Netflix. I think. Yeah. Virginity. It's like follow Jimmy while he lo- anyway. I'm show, gonna drop Showtime this. Plus Max HBO but, Max. Okay. So the point <laughs> the point that I was trying to make before my words got ahead of me they collided they collided my thoughts are just so great so fast um, is this he's so transparent about his sexual experiences as a young queer man and. Well, even outside of the LGBTQ community, I do think when any memoirist is talking about a sexual experience, you're probably not going to give them every little nitty gritty detail of what happened. Just because I think no matter how liberal or free or open-minded you are, we're human and we're fearful. And he just, what's the saying? No bars down? No. No, go for it. Tell us what it is. No. Hey, Hold don't do bars. that, producer Lindsay. Oh, no bars the, down. N- the idioms. No bars around me. I am not in a cage. No. I have the key inside of me and I've had it there the there entire time. Get going with my wow, virginity. I cannot make a point today. Okay. So the point is he just writes about it so beautifully to the point that it's uncomfortable when you're reading it. But by the end, you realize the importance of these yep. kind of stories being told. Because especially when it comes to queer youths, they are not educated and this is a major problem that we yes yeah i'm sorry i i I don't want to interrupt you no you look excited yeah i'm I'm excited because i as as we were interviewing him i didn't during the actual conversation when he when we were talking to him about the the sex scenes that he writes and how in detail they were when he and he did that for young kids Mm -hmm. this is a a young adult memoir so I didn't think of it then, but I'm thinking of it now. I really could have used a similar book like that. Yes. His, his book is, is probably specifically for not just queer young men, but also black queer young men, though all, all queer young men and also women probably will learn a lot about a lot of things through this book. But specifically, I could have used a book that showed me certain experiences because I can remember vividly the first time I ever kissed a woman. I was in college and I remember thinking that I didn't understand how it would happen. Like I had kissed boys. Because kissing men. a woman would be anatomically Did, different than kissing yes. a man? I, I mean, I can remember just like the 
intense nerves I had because I thought it would be fundamentally different from kissing a boy. And I think, not that you can fully expel that notion through reading a chapter in a book, but I think to some degree it would become normalized in your own mind when you're, you know, 13, 14, 15, whenever you're Mm -hmm. reading this, so that it actually lives somewhere inside of you before the moment when it's going to happen. And so I like that, that actually crystallized some preparation as we were talking that, Oh wow. Like the fact that I felt that way at age, at that point I was probably 20 and I was like, I'm sorry, I can't like, I actually said this aloud. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know. There was like this barrier, this actual felt like a wall that was up where I was like, this is something I can't cross because it's like uncharted territory and there will be a skill set that I don't have. Right. Well, even beyond- And maybe I don't have it, right, Catherine? You are a lovely kisser, but very anatomically different than kissing a man. It is true. Um, (laughs) Is it? (laughs) Lips are lips, baby. Tongue is tongue. A Tongue is tongue. Teeth are teeth. Um, No Teeth? You don't use your teeth? (laughs) You don't use your teeth when you kiss, Catherine. Okay. Okay. Okay, So what came to mind- I'm getting nervous because we're talking about things that are intimate. We are going to talk about sex. The thing that just came to mind when you were talking was growing up with magazines like Cosmopolitan, right? I, I can't. I mean, even, I didn't, but yes. I but for example, um, Sports Illustrated for kids is what you mean, right? Right, exactly. Okay. But I'm just saying that it was at our disposal, at our fingertips, to open up a magazine with the eight ways to please your man and the 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 taint, which is the spot between your butthole and your genitals, and if you just push the taint, they just wait. Whoop. What? Yeah, that was in Cosmo. I'm it, sorry. What? Producer Lindsay, do you remember the taint? No, because it, it, it ain't it ain't the butthole and it ain't the goods. It's the taint. <laughs> it's wait, the so is it like between. a combination of ain't and something else? Or no, it it, it ain't it anyway. Okay, we're gonna move oh. away from that because that's not the point. We're not talking about the taint. The point is that there was literature easily accessible that you could buy in line at the grocery store to get all the information about heteronormative sex Mm -hmm. everywhere, everywhere. But if you wanted any information about a queer relationship and queer sex, you had to go to porn. And if you're going to porn, you're often seeing people who are actually not queer couples having sex with each other. You're watching performative sex. So at this point, there was truly like no accessible information as a younger person who wants to learn more about sex of like, what might it be like with the person that you're attracted to? And so I think that's already setting up, you know, LGBTQ youths for disaster because then like, do they really have to go to porn to figure out what a sex is going to be like for them? When you can stand in line at like Kroger's and be flipping through talking about how many fingers you should use on someone's taint when you're about to check out with your tomatoes. Like it's just, it's, it's so backwards. What a choice, tomatoes. I think it's evidence that I wasn't reading any of those magazines that I don't know this landscape on my body, the taint. Um, wow, you're really you're honing in on well, that. Wouldn't you be fucking mesmerized if I told you about a body part that it had a name and you didn't know it? I mean, my God, I've had this body for 38 years and I've never named that area of it. And it's, that's shocking to me. Do you understand <laughs> I that, do. how crazy that is? I do. I um, do. I'm sorry to drop this on you. No, but I, it, it, even now, I think the fact that there's more accessible information for queer kids in some ways like George's book is great but in other ways like you said I the fact that you can access porn easily and that's your representation of it is a whole big problem I feel like it the I feel like it was actually beneficial to me growing up that there 
there wasn't information that's not beneficial, but the fact that there actually wasn't accessible like porn either was also really beneficial. Right, because, because then you're just then getting had, myths of what you should expect. At least then I had kind of like a blank slate. Sure. Right? So that's why I was so scared to kiss a girl because I was just like, I don't know what this is. Like, this is something I've never seen, something I've never read about. But it wasn't like I had, I didn't go in over aggressive because I had all of these visuals in my head about some performative ver- version of it either. Which is what most sex is when you start when you're young. It's performative, right? I mean, even if you have, even if it, porn and the internet didn't exist, it was performative. Of course, because like, this is what I look like from the, you know, you're inside your head, your head you're yes. like, I'm doing this. Wait, this is so you're like almost looking down on yourself. I mean, not negatively, but like from above. No, absolutely. Because on on our dog walk this morning, when we were deciding what to to record for the opener for this episode, Ashi was like, "We we definitely didn't land on the taint. Talk Um, about the taint. That's right." (laughs) But we we were trying to remember our sex education in schooling, and neither one of us. And Kate's mom is with us this week, and Kate couldn't remember her mom telling her anything about sex. Kate's mom couldn't remember telling her anything about sex. Same with me. The only thing I remember is from sex education, watching the video. And I know listeners, you remember this video of a woman giving birth, like a close up of the exit area, ready to pop out a human baby. Was head. the point to scare you away? I think so. I think getting pregnant. Yeah. They're like, here's a banana and a condom, but watch this kids. And everyone's like, ah, so like, yeah, I do think that's was the point because I don't think anyone really anatomically needs to be that close and personal watching someone give birth. Well, I don't know. It's so beautiful. Well, producer Lindsay has three children and maybe she thinks it's important. And you know what? I'm sure producer be. Lindsay was happy that we weren't there <laughs> eating popcorn at the foot of her hospital bed while this went down. <laughs> all told, what we're saying is that we're glad all boys aren't blue. <laughs> is out there for people to read. Because we certainly couldn't have written it according to the opening of this show. (laughs) We should bring George on and let the educator- Bring the professional on. Educate us. Let's do it. George M. Johnson is a writer and activist based in New York. He has written on race, gender, sex, and culture for Essence, The Advocate, BuzzFeed, News, Teen Vogue, and more than 40 other national publications. All Boys Aren't Blue, which is his memoir about growing up queer, is his debut. We are now joined by George M. Johnson, the author of All Boys Aren't Blue, the uh, memoir manifesto that recently dropped. George, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you all for having me. So as someone who has written a memoir that I, I... I've written a memoir as well. Um, I, I find the origin process of memoirs always really interesting, you know, because you can often go from just telling little stories to one of your, to your friends to maybe writing little essays, and all of a sudden you're like, "Bam! Wait, I have a whole book I could write." Can you can you share with us kind of where the kernel of this memoir came from and how it blossomed into the book we see before us? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I have been writing as a, you know, just like a journalist um, for several years. Um, so I've been telling my story in bits and pieces through Abed for for years. And those stories have always been the stories that have done the best for me. And so after years and years of writing in that way, I was like, okay, at some point I have to like put all of this together into like a body of work. 
uh, as my platform was growing and I was seeing like other memoirs starting to come out from other black queer authors. And I was like, these memoirs are so good. I would love to kind of tell my story because my story was a, a very different um, from a lot of the stories that we see out there. And so it was January of 2018 and I'd seen um, a mutual friend announce their book deal and it made me mad, but it didn't make me mad like that they got a book deal, but it made me mad that I had done the work. And I was like, okay, like you've been talking about this book for months. Like you've talked about it with friends, you've talked about it with people in the industry. Why have you just not sat and sat down to write this thing? And so literally that night I wrote a query letter. Um, the next day I heard something back saying they needed a proposal. I didn't have a proposal, so I <laughs> sat for the next three days and wrote a proposal um, based off of something I found on the internet. And then I sent that in four days later, I had an agent and two months later I had a book deal. Wow. Uh, it moved very, very fast. It, it was not the typical <laughs> book process, you know, that it's out on subs for months and waiting. My process moved extremely fast, um, from the signing of an agent to the signing of a book deal. But yeah, that's kind of how it all came about. Um, I just knew it was time to to tell my story and to tell our story um, for for Black queer boys um, who who just have not been seen yet uh, on screen in many ways, as well as uh, in the pages of books. Yeah, I, I truly believe after reading your book that I think this should be required reading in schools. It, truthfully, it's just it, it's so important and so beautiful and. And I, we wanted to know, you know, when you said that you saw fellow black queer men or, or um, friends writing memoirs that inspired you, were they in the young adult genre or, you know, how did you decide that you wanted to go young adult versus just sharing your memoir manifesto? Yeah. So, no, they weren't. Uh, it was Darna Moore's No Ashes in the Fire and Michael Arsenal's I Can't Date Jesus. And I had the opportunity of not only knowing them as friends, but also being able to interview them and, you know, have early access to reading their books and everything. Um, and theirs were adult. And so when we got to my process, I sent it in and my agent was like, have you ever thought about writing young adult? And I was like, well, no, even though I knew like a lot of my stories would probably be focused on my younger years anyway. Um, but it, it made me sit back and think because as an activist, because I, I do a lot of activism work, I always try to center like black kids in my activism because I feel like that's kind of the root of where we have to start. Like if we can help black children, they can become prosperous black adults. And so I was like, well, that kind of makes sense for me because that is where I know I would have the most impact is putting this type of material in the hands of people before they make the decision, in the hands of people who are looking to make the decision, in the hands of teachers and the guidance counselors and the librarians and the moms and the dads who are looking at their kids, who are wondering and questioning. Um, and so it then didn't become... Um, it just didn't become that hard to be like, yeah, I have to do this. Like, I have to do this for young adult. Um, I didn't realize beforehand that there wasn't a lot out there for young adults. Um, in, in terms of, like, uh, queer narratives, I know, like, um, Case and Alexander has written um, books about it and Gabby Rivera and, um, you know, several others, like Nick Stone, have been, done an amazing job of, like, holding up the, the torch for queer characters. 
Um, and so I was very happy, like, to be able to add this narrative now from the, the black queer boy perspective. Yeah, you had said that it, just a couple minutes ago that you didn't, you wrote this for us, right? For black queer boys. And because you wanted to have that story told that you didn't have when you were growing up, what, did you just see over the last few years, dating back to even when you were a kid, over the last, let's say the last 20 years, did you see no black queer boy representation or did the representation that you saw feel stereotyped to you and you felt like it wasn't even accurately portraying your experience and the experience of people you knew? I can't recall seeing it. Like I can recall seeing like my first images of it being like Karamo on the real world. I can remember the guy, the black guy in Spin City, mm-hmm. which is dating myself a little bit. <laughs> I can remember, um, I remember like um, Noah's Ark, which was kind of our first ever sitcom with leads that were black and, and gay. Um, but no, I, I just don't remember. I remember like queer folk, like which were white gays, but like, so it was like little blips of it that I can remember from childhood that I could kind of connect to, but I don't remember there just being something specifically for us that like I looked at and was like, okay, that's the type of person that I am. Um, it just didn't exist back then. And it was so taboo. Like, and you know, we were in the height of the HIV epidemic. So it was definitely not something that anybody wanted to broadly showcase, you know, because HIV especially is looked at as a uh, gay man's disease. And now is looked at as a black LGBTQ issue. And so that was definitely not something that was being heavily promoted. Um, and also that's probably as funny as it sounds episodes of law and order for also like the really? only <laughs> blips I ever seen of like queer characters, transgender characters specifically, mm. um, yeah. who were always like prostitutes or always like, you know, like the, you know, weird characters. And on, I will say on FBU, uh, 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 what's the thing? I see son is gay is a black gay man. And so that was also like, and I used to watch FBU in um, middle school and, and uh, high school. I, it was one of my favorite shows. So like that was also one of my first references that I had was Ice-T's tough relationship with his gay son. Um, so yeah, that, that, those were kind of like the only references though um, that I can think of. Yeah, it, it you um, you say in your book, you say queer folk often live a second adolescence throughout much of their lives because of the deprivation of basic sex education. And that hit me so hard. And, and also, it, you know, it made me laugh in your book when you talked about like real sex on HBO, you know, the things because I sneaked to that, too, when I was little. Like those were my little mm-hmm. like windows into whoa people having sex. And you I mean, we're diving right into it. You write with so much raw emotion and are so transparent about um, how you lost your virginity, as you say, twice in the book yes. and the scenes. I mean, I just, I have to applaud you for your bravery because as I was reading it, I'm like, is he going to go there? Oh my God, he's going there. And I had that moment of discomfort. <laughs> and then when it was all over, I'm like, this is so important. Like we have to be put into these places of discomfort because this is real. Sex is not bad. Sex is life. Sex is, you know, how we, for many of us define love and who we are. And you just, it really blew my mind that you'd fully, there was no holding back in your memoir. And, uh, you know, what, how, 
I'm writing a, a fiction book right now and I wrote a sex scene and I could hardly handle it. And I can't even imagine what it was like talking about your own personal experiences. What, what was that like writing a sex scene from your own life? <laughs> it was tough. So like the first time I wrote it, I wrote it very technical. Like it, it, I, I just wrote it kind of like technical because I was like, I don't know how like, I don't know what the parameter of, like, what they'll allow me to put in this book. But, you know, I wrote it kind of technical and kind of spoke around the things that were happening. So when my editor said it back, she was like, I'm glad you're writing about this. But she was like, you you need to spice it up. And so I was like, okay, well, <laughs> then I'll write what happened. Like, I'll really write it. And so that's the second version is what is in the book of me. Like, all right, well, I'll tell it. And it was funny because it wasn't hard writing it. It then became hard after the fact when I realized that people were going to read it. And then I was like, oh, my God, I really said a lot of stuff in that part. Um, And then when I had to do the audio book and I'm going (laughs) through it and it's like these engineers are looking at me. And so, like, I had to make them move to, like, the sides of the room (laughs) so that I didn't see them to do that chapter. And I was like, y'all have to move to the side of the room to do this chapter. And it was fun and funny, but it was like... I was cringing myself, but not cringing because it was like, this isn't acceptable or allowable, but just like, oh, I'm going to be the torch of like being a verse and our community like beats up on verse people or like, it's just weird. Like we just have like all these like taboos around tops and bottoms and verse and this and that. So I was like, I know when people read it, they're going to be like, so like it's gonna be it's fun so far, but I was like, but I, I also I knew it was necessary because I just had no roadmap, and I was like, I cannot watch a, a next generation like have nothing to to reflect on or talk about or about their sexuality and about how their sex operates. It's just not fair, and um, I was willing to take take the uncomfortable state that it makes me sometimes as long as I knew it was for the protection of those who were coming after me. Yeah, I was wondering when I'm reading it, I was like, God, I wonder if he got any resistance from his editor because this is a YA book. And then once I finished the chapter, I was like, but this is exactly what needs to be in a YA book. I mean, this is, you know, I feel like there's so much sugarcoating. And when we think about young adults these days, especially, I mean, when we were young adults versus who are young adults now, they're so far ahead of us. Like, this is the information that they should be given. And so, yeah. no, like, your editors were like, hell yeah, spice it up, go more? Yeah. That's um, Yeah, they, they pushed me to, they allowed me the space to really go there. I mean, and they allowed me the space to go there in many of the chapters, I think. I, I, you know, I'm pretty detailed in everything. So, um I was glad that I was given space across the board to really tell the full story. Perhaps it's one of the, perhaps it's the scene that we're talking about now, but is there one revelation in the book or scene in the book or interaction in the book that you would say gives you the most trepidation that you knew people were going to read it? Um, I mean, I think the, for me, the, of course, it's, it's probably the chapter about the sexual assault and the molestation. Um, and again, it was, it's, I think that's, it only gives you trepidation because it's like, you know, your family, you just 
feel for your family because it's like I know in their mind they feel like they did something wrong or like they missed something and I you know had talked with them was like y'all didn't miss anything like it just ha- it happened like these type of things can happen and I, I happen to be you know one of the people the many 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 people in this world that it happened to um, but it's okay like you know what I mean like I I don't harbor anything uh, ill towards like my family or anything. So I think that was like the biggest thing because I think it was like this worry that they had just something. I was like, I didn't miss anything because I didn't give off anything. Like I didn't change. Like I didn't, you know, like how sometimes people like there was a noticeable change. It was like, there was no noticeable change. I was already quiet and I was already reserved and I was already to myself. Like after that happened, I just stayed the same person I was. Um, but now my body just reacted differently to, to, to privately to sex. Right. Um, and again, I think it was tough just in the explaining of having empathy for, um, an abuser in a sense. And, um, I think my book in many ways teaches about empathy for abusers. Um, because it's tough. It's very tough to get to that place. And it was not somewhere that I was 10 years ago. Like I wasn't there 10 years ago. It took me a long time to really understand cyclical violence, to understand um, the dynamics of family and the dynamics and the pressures and the, the, the envy, guilt, jealousy, like all of the things that go into a situation being created like that. Um, and so I felt a duty to explain the totality of it because it's, it is my duty to still care for black people, um, especially in the hard parts. And so I think that chapter specifically spoke to the, the lens that I'm willing to go in my own healing and my own journey to still find empathy for, um, the black individuals in my family who I may have been, uh, harmed by. I, I was struck in that chapter at how poetic it almost was how you started, maybe not every paragraph, but many of the paragraphs you started with, I contemplated whether I would write about you now that you're dead. And, mm-hmm. and it was interesting because the way you, you opened the chapter, we didn't know who you were talking about yet. Right. So you're kind of right. like going along on this ride and, and then bam, everything reveals itself. It, I would be, I'm curious, were there several iterations of that chapter for you? I mean, was, did the healing process happen while you were writing that? Or do you feel like you were already in a place of empathy before you decided to sit down and write that? The healing process happened before. I actually talked with my uncle, Raw, who's named in the book. Um, I talked with him about that chapter first. And him giving me insight on on my on my cousins growing up is what helped me to get to that place Mm -hmm. to write it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't going to be written that way. It it certainly was not. And after that conversation though, it gave me time to process it all and realize like um, there are going to be like, there are just times where you just have like these relationships that are just tenuous, but you also have to be, it's like, if I'm fighting for black children, I'm also fighting for the child that's violated in him. And I'm also fighting for, um, like my older brother, like that, he was a child who, who was abused, right? Um, yeah. by not, not by like my parents or anything or our parents or anything, but by like, uh, I think an uncle or someone. And that child still every now and then comes up. You know what I mean? Like it comes to the surface and it lashes out. And I have to remember, like, I am not talking to 
my older brother in this moment. I'm talking to the child that never got to tell a story, the child that was never healed. And so part of my empathy, even when in the moments when I may be mad at a cousin or a brother, part of the empathy is also realizing like this is still something that's not healed. And if my job is to, to be a person who tells stories and crafts narratives around black people and around healing and around um, reflecting on trauma, then I have to do that work even harder when it comes to the people who are closest to me. Um, and so that's just kind of how I took that approach with that chapter after having the conversation with family and um, my uncle specifically. Um, and I think it made the chapter that much more, as you say, poetic in a sense. Yeah. What kind of, um, I guess, stages of, of memoir writing did you go through? And by that, I mean, there can, there can often be when you first sell the book, sometimes it's, you can get caught in like the, the professional stage of it, right? Like, Oh, I have a book. And then there's a the very personal stage where you're writing about family and about moments and people that are still in your life. And that can feel very almost insular because you want to make sure that you're doing, you're communicating with them properly too. And then once it's released, you realize that it's actually not for your family or for you, but it's like, it's as you said for a, another generation or whoever the intended audience is. Does that resonate with you? And did you kind of go through certain stages of un- understanding what you wanted this memoir to be about, what it meant to you, what it meant in general? Yeah, um, for me, I don't know if I necessarily went through like those stages. I. Like, I always knew who the memoir was about, like, who who it was for, who it was about. And so, even with my family, like, I, I knew how I wanted to highlight this very early on. So, I, I really didn't have, like, major worry about my family. Um, and I, I just already kind of knew who the memoir was for. And so, it kind of was... Yeah, well, and it was interesting, too, because it didn't became twofold. I, okay, so I, I will say in the end it changed because it was like, it was originally for young adults. Like, I specifically was like, this is geared for young adults. I have to get these kids, like, something, and we have to start. Like, I, you know, we got to break some barriers and do some things and push the envelope a little bit, but we got to get these kids the information. Kids need the knowledge. Kids need to know who their friends are, who their, their cousins are, and, and who you know, each other are and what they're dealing with uh, internally. But then I realized, you know, I'm 34, but a lot of my friends, once the book was released, were buying it. Like 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 28, 29, 27, 20, and were like, you know, I'm getting direct messages and messages from across the world from people who are like, oh my God, I see myself. Like, this is our story. You're telling the story. And, and I'm like, but you're 30, like, this wasn't even intended for you. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, you weren't the primary audience at mine, but then I had to think about it. Like, there's all, we all, if, if you're like me, then you still have this little kid inside that did. And that's why I go into the second adolescent part, because you're, if you're my age, many of us are still in our second are coming out of, I would say, like that second adolescence. Um, because I couldn't date in high school because dating a boy was not a thing. So by the time I got to an age to even learn what dating was, I was 12 years behind 
everyone else who started when they were 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. I started at 25, 26, 27. So now at 34, I am only learning how to properly care for somebody else that's not myself and properly navigate those things. And so the book ended up speaking to people around my age heavily. And it's still speaking because I'm seeing everybody starting book clubs and like LGBT book clubs and like all these things. They're like, we got to discuss this book because this is it. Like, yes, like this is what we feel and this is what we went through. And um, so again, I, I will say, I think at that point is when the audience, like you said, when the book was released, that's when I realized there was a huge market that was not young, that were not young adults that were adults who needed a book that talked to their adolescents. Absolutely. I guess that's what I was just saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like this big healing Band-Aid that you're putting out into the world, except for I feel like Band-Aids, you need to air it out. Anyway, but it's a bad, healing bad analogy. Um, you, it, that makes me think of the line in the book where you say um, you're always having to come out somewhere. And do you feel, you know, obviously as you're reading this book, like you can see all the different phases that you went through in your life and, and you come across like as the current author, as someone who's incredibly confident in your skin, but do you still feel, do you still feel that line resonates for you that, you know, you're always going to have to come out again, depending on where you are, or do you feel like you've reached a level where that is not as applicable to you? Yeah, no, you you always coming out. I, I mean, you'll be coming out forever because yeah. there's going to be somebody who don't know you. Like, you're always going to meet somebody who doesn't know you and doesn't know that you're queer. Like, so you're always going to be explaining that when they make that joke. When you're in a barbershop with people who don't know you and they say that word mm-hmm. and you're like, ah, ah, you know, we don't do that in here. And then the barber got to address people or whatever. So, like, you're always literally going to be coming out. Um, and that's tough, um, which is why I don't... Excuse me, I don't like using the word coming out um, because it's like I'm not abnormal or like something different or something, you know, nor should I be required to tell you that, right? Like you should just be a decent person to know that you don't treat people who are like me like that. So I always say inviting in, right? Because like that is my space and like my truth and like I'm inviting you into this. Like, I'm not coming out to you. I'm inviting you into who I am, what I am, what we are, what our communities look like. Um, But yeah, you're always going to be coming out in the world um, simply because it just has not created a space for where that's not a necessary thing for some people. Like, some people have to know. And until we get to this place where it's just not a thing that needs to be known from everybody about how everyone identifies Mm -hmm. um people like myself are always going to have to be explaining that and also like you know part of it is like when you talk about like gender identity and sexuality you're also talking about the performance of it and so you know how people dress and you know i i would love to be able to dress however i want it in every room but i know that that is not safe It's not that I can't do it because I do whatever I want, but I also know that the doing of whatever I want and the expression of who I am sometimes comes at a price of safety. And so then you are always thinking about that as well. So, yeah, it just is something that just never goes away and is always at the forefront of any time I enter a new space. It's like, well, these people don't know me, but you're probably going to have to at some point come out or address it or 
have people looking at you because your jeans are too tight or your, your, your walk is too fast or your mouth is too whatever, you know? So it's like, it's just something that you're always going to have to deal with. Now, I will say I've moved to a place where I don't care a lot of times. So I'm going to show up how I want to show up. Um, but that's the part that, that, that you start to build upon is where you, you give less care about that and you just start to perform and, and move as you are. Yeah, Kate, Kate and I run into that often as well. We live in Charleston, South Carolina, and it's, you know, that that pronoun assumption that people make, you know, like if you're yeah. in an Uber or something like that. And they're like, so you yeah. got a husband? I'm like, no, I have a wife. And I, I used to have that moment of, oh, am I ever going to see this person again? Do I want to just like play their games so I don't make them uncomfortable? Like I used to care so much about making people comfortable. And, yeah. and then there's that moment of safety too, where it's like, well, the calculus is very different if you're getting dropped off downtown at a restaurant versus like you're yeah. in a 40 minute Uber on the highway. Right. Like, and <laughs> right, who am right, I stuck right. in a car with yeah. and what is this going to turn into? But, um, off of that, I, I think with most certainty, I would say things are so much better now than in the nineties when I was growing up for being gay. But sometimes I wonder if things have just kind of shape shifted a little bit or they've, gone into pockets and into hiding and, and certain assumptions or uh, that I think about how people feel, maybe they're just not being said as frequently. What's your perspective on, have we made the progress everybody thinks we've made or have we shape-shifted? Um, I mean, I think we've made progress. Like I wouldn't say we haven't made progress. I think, I think the problem is though that people think that visibility and representation equals the end goal or equal safety. And that's just not the case. Like the more visible we are and the more public we are, it doesn't, it hasn't transformed into systems that protect us. And so although we have started to be able to move systems and change laws and find some ways to protect us, it still has not within many communities and many pockets um, been reflected downward. Um, and so and then you also still have like the racial divide of queer community. And so when you look at the intersection of queer community, it's like, well, I'm still a black queer person. So like, I still don't have the advantages of, of a Caitlyn uh, Jenner. I don't have the advantages of um, many of the people on Queer Eye, right? Um, I don't have like, I, I don't get to have those advantages of like just being able to, to, to do that and, not, and nor do many of the people who look like me and are like me. we don't get those type of um advantages in the world when it is us who enter the room as black queer people versus um others who enter the room as white queer people right it's like people all the time it's like yeah ellen is a, a, a white queer woman but there is no black queer equivalent of that like, and there isn't going to be one, like, for a long time. Like, we're not going to get to that level of where she can, you know, mess up time and time and time and time and time again. And she is still going to be Ellen. Mm-hmm. Like, she's going to be fine. We get one mistake and it could be it, right? Um, so, 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 yeah, even within that, it's just different. So it's like progress is definitely being made, but... It's like it's like the same way like when progress was being made for for women, it was also like a gap being created between black women and white women, and between uh, white women and black women and Latinx women, right? Yeah. 
I think the same thing happened with our community. It was like progress was being made, but then HIV and X happened and cases for white queer people went down and cases for black queer people kept going up. So it was like we made all this progress and then at the same time, one community that had an intersection with the other queer community hasn't been able to, to, to live in the fruits of the process, of the progress, excuse me, as the other community has. I, I don't want to give anything away from the book because obviously I want everyone to go buy this book and read it, but I do have two chapters in particular that I wanted to share with you that really just lodged into my heart. Um, the losing hope chapter, mm-hmm. George, <laughs> I mean, I cried like two or three times reading that chapter. I'm getting teary. I think about it right she now. Is. It, it really, it was amazing. It was beautiful. Um, and thank you for sharing that. But I, I don't want to cry. So what I'm going to talk about instead was the We Should Have Been Prom Kings chapter. Um, first <laughs> yes. of all, is it Zay? Is that how you say? Z, Z Zay? Zay. Zay. Um, is there any chance a little something's going to happen with you and Zay? Because at the end of that chapter, I was like, I really hope they, I hope they find each other again. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God. I just talked to Zamis <laughs> this morning. Um we talked so all the time. I just talked to him. Literally, I just talked to him this morning. Um, he was supposed to come. So we were supposed to have a book release party. And I actually was, he was going to be my date to the book release party. Um, so it was going to be like a, a, a thing. Because then I was going to be able to tell everybody, like, well, this is the person that I was supposed to go to prom. That I wanted to go to prom with. And he wanted to go to prom with me. But now we kind of got to at least come to my book release party on a date. Um, <laughs> but I talk, to, I talk to Zay all the time. He's silly. He lives in North Carolina. Um, we've been friends for years. Um, he has the book. And, you know, he was saying, like, well, you know, that's the other thing, too, because he was like, at some point, people are going to be asking, who is this person? I was like, well, I'll wait for more people to get the book. I said, and then maybe for five months, I'll tell everybody who you are. Like, and that that, that, that whole chapter is about you. Um some of my friends from high school knows about him. Um, but yeah, no, no, no. I, and it was funny because very early on, I told him, I was like, well, I wrote a whole chapter. About you. He was like, whatever, George. Like, you, even though you always coming in my um, texts and saying something stupid. And then once we got like a final, final draft of the book and I was able to uh, cut it uh, in Adobe and send him just his chapter, he was like, oh my God, you really wrote a whole chapter about me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it's been fun. He just got his book today. And so he's um, saying that he needs to sign it and everything, but no, we're really good friends still. And uh, so, yeah, I would love for everybody someone... to find out who it is. So. <laughs> yeah. I would love for someone to write a chapter about me. Like you, you wrote about and say that the last paragraph in that chapter, just, it kills me. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. And if people want to be following you right now, since, you know, we're all at home and we can't get on a book tour, people should be following your Instagram and Twitter. You said you're super active on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. Um, I've grown to like Instagram. So now I <laughs> very nice pictures. Um, and that's been, interestingly enough, that's where more people have started following me since the book came out. I was like, oh, okay, like that's cool. Um but yeah, um, I am GM Johnson on all my platforms. And I do have a Facebook page that I post on time to time. Um, oh, Facebook. George M. Johnson. Yeah. Right. It's like old <laughs> Facebook, but George M. Johnson. I think it's George Matthew Johnson is, is how it's listed. But um, yeah, no, no, no. I'm very active on Twitter, very active on Instagram. So um, yeah, that's where people can find me social-wise. 
Awesome. We, we got just a, a couple kind of generalized author questions for you at the end. Some quick hit mm-hmm. questions. Yeah, just some quick hit questions. Um, what was your favorite book as a child? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> this is the hardest part of the book. interview. Oh, my God. What was, I know. I'm like, what was that book called? It's called like, what's it called? Like Appleheads? Or like oh. the Appleheads? We it always like the these, time. like, it was, it was like some type of tale. It was like these stories, like these ghost stories that oh. we have found at like a festival one time. It was like a whole series. And I read the whole I'm going to Google like, Appleheads and see what comes up. I, know, I think right? it was like something <laughs> of the Appleheads or something. Okay. Something Avenge of the Appleheads. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what was the last book you read? Mine. Yeah, <laughs> it really, I, I'll say, yeah, like I've read my book, I think like 10 times already. Um, I'll say before that, the last book I read was uh, Homie by Danette Smith. Okay. Uh, which is a uh, poetry book um what is there a book out there that you wish you had written book out there that i wish i had written like something that was um, so good that you're like damn it i should have wrote this <laughs> yeah. um honestly is that a book out there i wish i had written no i don't think so I mean, right. you know i think i think honestly if i weren't if I weren't already like a journalist, then I probably would have a different opinion on writing. But as someone who's written thousands of articles, sometimes it's like, no, I don't want to write nothing else but the only things that I'm writing. Like, um, and I am also doing a graphic novel on Stonewall. So I think that's the book oh. that I probably would have dreamed to write. So yes, I actually am. I did sign a, a second deal a while ago and, so I am with a different publisher, but I am working on a graphic novel uh, of the Stonewall Riot. Are you doing so, the art for that? I'm not doing the art. Okay. Um, a, a queer woman by the name of uh, Taylor Lorenz is doing the art. Oh, awesome. Okay. Uh, favorite show to binge? Favorite TV show to binge? Uh, Living Single. I've, I mean, I've watched every single episode, but Living Single. And then Beyonce Destiny's Child or Beyonce Solo? Um, Beyonce solo okay okay I wasn't after reading your book I wasn't sure where you were going to go with that what's the final question Um, well the final final question is chocolate chip cookie or oatmeal raisin we ask all of our our interviewers um, (laughs) chocolate chip cookies yes Okay. We, we're, we're scoring heavy on my team. I'm chocolate chip. Kate's oatmeal raisin. Yeah. So. I like oatmeal raisin, um, but sometimes you, it's raisin. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love oatmeal raisin, but sometimes it's like, I can't do raisin. Okay, so. George. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for writing such an awesome book that is uh, doing good work out there in the world. Yeah. Huge congratulations to you. Thank you. And that's a wrap. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Cause it taint over till the booty cheeks swing. It is my <laughs> ver journey <laughs> to the end of the show. It is my honor and my ver journey to share this with you. The, so the thing is, is the way that you yoke two words together oh, is just shit. unprecedented. You are piquing my interest. That's right. That you you got to be a longtime listener to be following the program now. At this point. That's right. Jurassic Park. <laughs> anyway. Little Penny um, Watts, take it away. Maybe we should have asked you to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us before we said all of that. But if you were enjoying the podcast, please do it. We will 
give you a shout out. And it turns out no one has given us a review. Well, they could have rated though. We've probably got a lot of top ratings, but maybe not a new review. So we're going to need our listeners, um, whether we're related to them or not, to go (laughs) onto Apple Podcasts and drop us a, a love letter. Or just like an ambivalent letter, but just some sort of letter. Love letter. And, and until then, you can check us out on Instagram at Free Cookies Podcast. You can support our show to help us keep this advertisement free at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash free cookies. You can email us at freecookiespodcast at gmail.com. And we are produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio. You heard her voice on the previous episode of this show, so you got to know her a little bit better. You should check out her pod. Be bringing her back. Ding, 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 ding,